Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. James Welch, an American poet of Blackfeet and Gros Ventre heritage, was a novelist, poet, and teacher. He was born on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation in Browning, Montana, and died in 2003. His papers are held at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University. Living Distance, The Life and Papers of James Welch, an audio essay prepared by Eric Ward and read by Preska Ahn, explores the writer's life, his legacy, and his archive. The Beinecke Library at Yale University is pleased to welcome scholars and students to consult the recently cataloged papers of James Welch. James Welch was a Native American novelist, essayist, and poet who was born on the Blackfeet Reservation in northern Montana in 1940. Over his long career, he published three books of poetry, one work of nonfiction, and a number of novels, most notably Winter in the Blood and Fool's Crow, both of which received the LA Times Book Prize and the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Award. Welch came of age as a writer in the 1960s, at the beginning of a period of time often referred to as the Native American Renaissance. It was a time when Native American authors began to garner recognition as strong voices in their own right, instead of merely as literary curiosities. Speaking of the snide prejudice of the American literary elite, which he encountered early in his career, Welch said, To be told you're the best Native American writer from northern Montana is a pretty backhanded compliment. George Miles, curator of Western Americana at the Beinecke, describes the change in cultural climate at the beginning of Welch's career. The 1960s were a time when, for various reasons, Indian communities had, for the first time in a long while, a, a growing sense of opportunity. It wasn't necessarily a time of prosperity or, or good times on the reservation, but, but in the 60s and, and the 70s, federal government policies towards Native American communities encouraged a greater degree of cultural autonomy and political autonomy than had been the case for really since the end of the uh, Indian Wars in the 19th century. And a number of young uh, Indian men and women had opportunities, I think, for education uh, both on and off reservation that allowed them to begin to create uh, a form of literary expression that had feet both in their roots as Native Americans, but also um, reached out to and drew on their experiences with other literatures, with, with other cultures. Welch left the reservation for good when he was 15 to attend high school in Minneapolis. He went on to enroll in the University of Montana's creative writing program, led by the well-known American poet Richard Hugo. Studying under Hugo was a kind of cultural vestibule for Welch, allowing him to explore and develop the themes that came out of his Blackfeet experience while studying the literature of the larger world. Several years before his death, Welch reflected on his time in Hugo's class. He said, It didn't take me long to realize that I was in way over my head. I discovered I didn't know how to write the kinds of poems my classmates wrote. Up to then, my poems had rhymed and were filled with majestic mountains and wheeling gulls. I didn't know the poets they referred to. When Hugo, to provide an example, asked me to look up a poem by Yeats, I wrote, look up Yeats in my notebook. Finally, out of desperation, Hugo called me into his office and told me to close the door. He told me to sit down, and I knew and dreaded what was coming. 
You don't know anything about poems, do you? I sat for a moment, trying to think of a defense for my sorry attempts in class, but nothing came to me, so I said, No. To my surprise, Hugo said, That's okay. What do you know about? When I couldn't answer that question, he said, Where did you grow up? I could at least answer that, and did. I was born in the Blackfeet Reservation, my father's country, and I lived there and later lived on the Fort Belknap Reservation, my mother's home. Both reservations are in northern Montana, on the High Line, just south of the Canadian border. Both are quite isolated. I've heard both described countless times as being bleak, even hopeless. But to a kid growing up, they weren't bad at all. You had friends, your parents loved you, you loved your culture, you rode horses, you put up hay, you fished and hunted. It was only later, after you'd been told that your culture was dying, and that you had grown up in a depressed, bleak place, that you came to believe that life on a reservation was not what you thought it was. Hugo, in his infinite wisdom and generosity, said, Go ahead, write about the reservation, the landscape, the people. At the moment, I thought that was a fine idea. But as I walked home that day, I became more depressed with each block. I knew that nobody wanted to read about Indians, reservations, or those rolling endless plains that turned into Canada just 30 miles north. By the time I got home, I began to think that maybe that country was bleak, and that life on the reservation was hopeless. Nevertheless, I began to write poems about the country and the people I came from. Apparently some folks were interested in my subject matter, as I began to publish poems in small magazines, and even a couple of large ones. A few years later, my first book editor and I were going over the manuscript of Riding the Earth Boy 40, and he asked me, Why are you so obsessed with bones and wind? It seemed a strange question, but when he started to point out the many references to bones and wind, I realized that I was writing about a country I knew deep down, without thinking about making choices or selecting the right metaphor. I was writing about a world I was born into, a world full of bones and wind, the world of my ancestors. And 30 years later, in one way or another, I'm still writing about that world. Riding the Earth Boy 40, Welch's first collection of poems, is autobiographical and pessimistic. It deals primarily with themes immediate to reservation life. But it shows the streak of dry humor that would become characteristic of Welch's work. One poem, describing his eccentric grandfather, ends, And when he died, it was surprising how well his friends all took it. In his later years, Welch became a scholar, eventually publishing a complete work of nonfiction on the death of Custer. But more than for his poetry or his nonfiction, Welch is best known for his novels. In that longer format, he was able to meld the caustic emotion of his poetry with his inclination for research. His novels are always a mix of the historical and the autobiographical. Fool's Crow is a coming-of-age story set in 19th century America. Indian Lawyer tells the tale of a young Native American professional who spends his life away from the reservation, but can never fully acclimate himself to American culture. Death of Jim Loney is about a Vietnam War veteran who returns from a foreign war to equally alienating domestic soil. In a sense, Welch doesn't only speak across the cultural barriers of the late 20th century, but also across vast expanses of time, bringing the silenced history of his people into a larger, modern readership. This larger readership brought Welch to Yale. He stopped here twice in book tours, and became close friends with several professors and curators. 
After Welch's death in 2003, Pat Willis, curator of the Yale Collection of American Literature, hoped to acquire his papers for the library. The reason, she says, is not only the peculiar quality of Welch's work, but also a long-term effort to move the Beinecke's collection toward an accurate sampling of all kinds of writers that can be called American. I had decided in the late 80s that our collections of African-American writers, and then many other American writers, with and without hyphens, was going great places. And what we were neglecting were Native American writers, Chicano writers, Chicano-Chicano writers, Asian-American writers. And when I looked those groups over, it struck me that the Native American was a writer who, who was probably not going to assimilate in the way that European Americans have assimilated. A century ago, we would have found Irish-American writers or German-American writers or Italian-American writers, and most of those hyphens have disappeared. But the Native American has been here for centuries and centuries and centuries and has an orientation to this landscape and landmass that none of the, the white or black settlers has. And we see that being expressed in their literature. Native Americans and European immigrants have faced very different problems with assimilation. During the 20th century, while American immigration policies were welcoming the literary influence of Irish, German, and Italian American writers, inconsistent domestic policy prohibited Native Americans from integrating in a similar way. From the 1880s to the 1920s, the U.S. government sought to tear down tribal structures in the hope of fostering individualism among Native Americans. But in the 1930s, under the leadership of Director of Indian Affairs John Collier, the government reversed its policy. Indian cultural identity was promoted as the correct alternative. In the wake of World War II, however, policy experts reverted again to turn-of-the-century theories of individual integration. There were movements to relocate Native Americans from Western reservations to cities like St. Paul, Denver, or Minneapolis. Finally, under the Kennedy administration, the government turned back to the opinions of Collier and tried once again to encourage self-sovereignty. This spirit ultimately led to the emergence of Native American artists and writers of the 60s and 70s, the era that is now referred to as the Native American Renaissance. But even though governmental conditions were right for new forms of self-expression, Native American writers faced another, more basic problem. For Native Americans, English must always, in some way, be a conqueror's tongue. As George Miles explains, this posed certain challenges for Welch and his contemporaries. All of these writers, as I just said earlier, have a foot in two camps. Their aspirations are to reach an audience larger than just the Native community that gave birth to them, that, that educated them, that, that they have long-standing ties to. They want to present that experience to a, a much larger audience, and so they can't be writing in Blackfoot or in Kiowa uh, or in Abnaki and expect that they're going to get a large readership. So English becomes the language, the lingua franca, as it were, that allows them to reach beyond their immediate community and to engage peers in a variety of ways um, to, and to challenge the broader community to acknowledge this um, special community within them. Miles argues that this type of cultural assertion is not far from one particular European writer. In some ways it's like James Joyce choosing to write in English, not in, in Gaelic. Um, 
Uh, he's, uh, Joyce is worried about Irish autonomy and cultural independence, and yet uh, he's going to use English to foster that identity, not, not revert to Gaelic. But just as Joyce would play with language in different ways and, and wonder where all languages came from and engage in making up a language in Finnegan's Wake, most of the Native American writers would want to bring into their work aspects of their linguistic traditions. They would try to imagine how to do that, how to introduce particular words, or how to be able to bring ceremonies into their writing, and would challenge their readers, who may not have grown up in the Indian communities, to, to grapple with this these words they didn't know with this language they didn't fully understand to try and at least hear it even if they couldn't fully understand it to, to work with that and I think all of them to one degree or another wrestle with that question of using a, a conqueror's tongue in order to try and speak back or and, and talk back to the culture that imposed itself upon their world Welch addresses this question of language at several points in his later novels. In Fool's Crow, the reader is thrust completely into a Blackfeet world. The white people in the book speak a meaningless gibberish. And Welch's last novel, Heart Song of Charging Elk, is implicitly focused around the question of language. The protagonist, a young Sioux man, travels to Europe as part of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. There he falls ill and is left behind in a French-speaking hospital. With no French and very little English, he struggles to connect with others through language to find his way across a cultural divide. Using language to make a community is a theme in several of Welch's books, but it also makes a fine analogy for his life as a writer. Welch is always writing to connect himself, either to his ancestors that precede him or his readers that will follow. At the end of his life, Welch suggested that being in the tradition of stories is a tradition in and of itself. He said, Indian writers might come from different eras, from different geographies, from different tribes, but we all have one thing in common. We are storytellers from a long way back, and we will be heard for generations to come. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Beinecke Library. This presentation was written and prepared by Eric Ward, a student employee in the Collection of American Literature, and narrated by Preska Ahn. Beinecke curators George Miles and Pat Willis contributed to this podcast. All excerpts from James Welch's writings have been provided by his bookseller, Ken Lopez. Listeners who would like to view the papers of James Welch may consult the Beinecke Library's website at www.library.yale.edu.